Hi, everybody. Welcome to the June 22nd, 2018 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on the city of Denver pulling its bid to host the 2020 Democratic National Convention due to the dates conflicting with three other events already slated to bring in $45 million to the city. Patty Cahoon from Westward. I realize that they're pointing to three events that are going to be coming in 2020, but this kind of felt like the city of Denver saying, uh, thanks, but no thanks. We're, something suddenly came up. It felt very Marsha Brady to me. What do you think? We have to wash our hair in 2020. <laughs> there are a couple things that did seem a little hinky about this. One is the conventions that are coming to town plan way out in front. So if these conventions are that big, they had to know about them if they'd asked before the bid was put in. So that's one thing. We're also getting 9,000 new hotel rooms online in the next year. So you've got to think that wasn't going to be the big issue. But I think it really was that they were trying to get the uh, Obama backdrop. Do you remember that incredible, like the Greek columns? <sighs> they couldn't secure it, so they just decided to drop it. I could certainly understand. I mean, not be able to secure that big Greco-Roman. That was uh, amazing. Yeah, it was, it was very cool. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. I guess this also brought the conversation, at least for myself, that is hosting a big national, the Democratic National Convention, or the Republican National Convention for that matter, uh, as big a deal for a city as maybe it used to be? In, in terms of prestige, probably not, but in terms of bringing in people who have money to spend, uh, ab absolutely yes. I, I think that the issue was Denver had said, we want, we offer to host it in August, which they did for Obama. And the Democratic National Committee said, well, Denver, we really like you. You're one of the four finalists, but we're probably going to do it in July. At which point Denver said, sorry, we just don't have the capacity in July because we've got three prior things. And I, I think it is true that Denver, say, unlike Las Vegas, cannot host more than one major event at a time. I mean, back in the last DNC, you, you had you know, delegates like staying at hotels in, in state delegations like out way down south. You know, not even in the, in the city of Denver, and then the, the bus transportation didn't work very well, and there were traffic jams. So you had, actually had a lot of delegations that, that missed much of the convention because uh, they were so far away. So if you had something else going on, it would be even worse. What I'm, but I'm a little concerned that we have these three things in July of 2020, which the city won't tell us what they are. Two of them are corporate, we know, but, you know, why is it that conventions scheduled in Colorado, there's some secret? You know, what, what, what's going on? I, I would like to know that. I mean, I'm, I'm worried it could be some a large Illuminati or Freemason gathering that could maybe take over the city on a permanent basis. Well, the nice thing about those Illuminati conventions is they're held at DIA and not downtown, so the traffic's going to be a lot easier. I mean, it, 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 that's least, a good you know, point. Yeah, that's, uh, Eric Sondman, political analyst. Um, uh, it, it, the other thought that occurred to me is the Democrat National Convention seems like a pretty big deal, that if they really wanted this, if this was going to be the big kahuna to have again 12 years after hosting in 2008, that they probably could have gone to those other conventions and maybe found some wiggle room, but it also became a decent excuse. I could be cynical. It's happened before. What do you think? Cynicism on this show? <laughs> uh, no room for that. I think Denver's very happy now. We have Comic-Con. So who needs political conventions? We're, we're, we're taken care of. I actually think this says more about Denver than it does really about national conventions. I think in 08, we were still sort of a wannabe big city. And it was a really big deal when we landed that convention after 100-some years, 102 years, I believe. 100 exactly. 100 exactly since we'd had a national convention here. Uh, here, I don't sense a lot of angst that it's not coming to Denver. I don't sense a lot of discussion about it. 
I think people are sort of, oh, whatever. I see the three cities that are left, Houston. Houston in July is a fun time. Uh, <laughs> Miami Beach in July is a fun time. And then Milwaukee, my prediction is they go to Milwaukee, Wisconsin being, you know, one of the states that, uh, that turned it uh, for Trump uh, two years ago. Natasha Garter, Articles Editor of 5280. Uh, so what is it? Did Denver just not want it bad enough? Or are we now no longer, as, as Patty has uh, iterated a long time on this show, not, no, we're no longer the Sally Field of cities? We don't care if you like us anymore? What's the deal? Well, I, I, there are various estimates on how much the last convention brought in. But uh, it, for the region, it could be upwards of $266 million. So I'm not sure there's many cities in the, in the country who really willingly say, yeah, no, we, we don't want that sort of... Um, money and, and economy coming into our, our state. Um, I think what's, what's interesting, uh, and, and Eric just brought this up, is sort of looking back, looking back at where Denver was the last time the convention was here and how much the city has grown, how much the economy has grown. It would be a very different city for the convention to come to if it, it w was scheduled for 2020. Um, and I could see where the Dems would want to recapture some of that magic that they had during that cycle to say, okay, well, you know, it worked for us before. Let's go back to that place where we had that sort of mood and moment. Um, interestingly, though, I think it's also a chance to sort of remember how much of an impact it had on careers and sort of the, the, the state of, of the city. I mean, indelibly, the city became connected with the Obama administration, and there's so many people today where that's still a calling card. I worked at the convention. I did something to bring it here. I did something on Obama's campaign. So no matter what, we, we don't have the 2020 event, but the, 20, the 2008 event still large, looms large in, the, in the, the city's history. Why do a reboot if you can still live off the glory of high school or something like that? I get it. That makes sense. That makes sense. The 2018 primary election is mere days away with ballots due on June 26th. The races for governor have stayed hot with the last debate of the season focusing on the record money being spent so far. Jared Polis has reportedly spent over $11 million on the campaign in just the primary. But when pressed by his opponents, he blamed the outside money supporting Mike Johnston as one of the reasons he just had to spend so much money. Uh, Patty, $11 million is nothing to sneeze at. I, I can't remember the exact records, but I thought, at least in the primary season, they hovered around $2 million. Uh, and uh, even Victor Mitchell is spending a, a lot of money, would probably get his own headlines about that, except that Jared Polis has bought those, or not bought those headlines, but he has made those headlines with the $11 million he spent. Is this pointing to a bigger issue for Colorado politics? Yes, that people can waste a lot of money running for governor. We're at 24 million already just in the primaries. The interesting thing about Jared, or we're calling him Jerry Polis now to make him seem more friendly, a la David's father. <laughs> the interesting thing about Jerry Polis is he is polling about where he was when this election started. Low 30s, although he's trending up right now. So you're thinking, did $11 million pay for that, stabilize it? Will it buy him enough votes to take him over the top? Or would he have done the same even if he didn't put in the $11 million? He's got good name recognition. He's a strong campaigner. He's a good debater. He's done very well, I think, in the debate. So he might have just thrown away $11 million that he didn't have to. Uh, Mike Johnston has certainly put in money, and I have to say he's used it to good effect, I think, on his TV ads. I think his most recent TV ad is the best of the ads we've seen. Uh, Victor Mitchell, he actually may have put his money in a good spot. He seems to be trending up. We have a story today that one poll, one poll, Western Journal shows that he is ahead of Walker Stapleton. That's against the Magellan strategies, which still gives it to Stapleton and Polis. David, before the show started, we were talking about uh, way back when, the, I guess in the 2000s, when 
uh, Wayne Allard was going up against uh, Tom Strickland, uh, and the lawyer lobbyist tag was used really effectively in that general election campaign. But the, that tag came from the primary from Gene Nickel, who was up against Tom Strickland in that Democratic primary. I guess I'm wondering, is Victor Mitchell, if he doesn't win the race, doesn't upset Walker Stapleton, is he injuring Walker Stapleton's general election bid with his ads centering on things like honesty <coughs> and lying and claims and ads that aren't just uh, conservative or right-wing issues? Uh, probably yes, and uh, Stapleton's uh, maybe the silver lining you can draw is that the Democrats have been running so far to the left, uh, they're going to have a lot of trouble attracting moderate voters um, in the general election. Uh, in terms of the money, you have in, on the Democratic side, you've got Jared Polis, who is the richest man in Congress, worth hundreds of millions of dollars. So of course, you know, for him, eleven million dollars is like. Other people saying, I'll make a $750 contribution to my campaign. Um, uh, Mike Johnston has the benefit of his patron. Uh, Michael Bloomberg is one of the richest men in the world. And, you know, Michael Bloomberg, the extra money he just dug up to put into Johnston's campaign, I mean, that's just the, the gold doubloons he has, he found behind his couch after a party. Uh, Terry Kennedy has the advantage of being backed by the Colorado Education Association, which currently is able to collect dues from unwilling people and use it for political purposes unless the people take advantage of this very difficult and narrow opt-out window. And so they just sent something to all their members, which was a complete lie, saying that uh, the group uh, Secure Future, which this man across the table from me, Eric Sonderman, is a co-director of, and supported reform of the public employees' retirement uh, system to help the public employees and make the state more fiscally stable. The, the union opposed that, and according to the union, uh, Secure Futures gave $2 million to Mike Johnston, which was just a flat-out lie. There was nothing to it, just made it up out of thin air. And then you got left out of all this fun of the, the rich people and their money. Donna Lynn, who just has to raise money in the doesn't have as many billionaire friends and, and powerful special interests, so she's got to raise money in the, the regular campaign finance system, which is extremely restrictive. And so somebody who likes her can't write her a $5,000 or $10,000 check. And this is how our, our system, created by Common Cause, and has ended up benefiting uh, those who are the allies of the ultra-rich. Ultra Eric, these are not the first millionaires to run for office in Colorado. We've had uh, a lot of people, uh, Pete Coors ran for Senate. He had maybe not a polis pocketbook, but probably a substantial one enough to uh, do it, and it didn't guarantee him a win. In fact, I don't think he did very well in that race at all. Uh, and other millionaires have, have not been able to guarantee their pocketbook to guarantee the race. This one feels a little bit different, though. Um, I don't know if it's the bottomless pit of the money, if it's the experience that Jared's already been able to get. Uh, I don't know. What do you think? I think it's a really good question, Dominic. You look back, we've had a whole lot of self-funders in Colorado, and I can't think of many cases where it's ended well up until Jared Polis. I mean, you can go back to Phil Wynn, a name from the past, Bruce Benson, Steve Schuck, uh, Ruck Bridges threw his hat in the governor's ring, I'm, I'm Pete Coors, I'm missing several others. And none of them have ended with a victory. I think what's different about this one is Jared already has a title in front of his name. He became first a State Board of Education member, big deal, big whoop but then became a congressman. And so now he has some other footing to run for governor as opposed to just the successful businessman 
uh, a self-funder. I have no idea where, I'm, I'm just going to be dead honest, I have no idea where this democratic race is. I think any pundit these days, particularly in the aftermath of 2016, has to have a degree of humility. I made a lunch bet with a, a good friend recently uh, on the Democratic race. I picked Kerry Kennedy. That was two weeks ago. It feels like a two-week-ago bet. And, uh, you know, her momentum seems to have peaked maybe on, on June 1st instead of uh, a week ago, which was really prime time for, for people returning ballots. Uh, Polis is... As you point out, I mean, he has spent all this money to basically stay where he is at. Um, we'll see if he gets a return. Mike Johnston is the closer here. I think he has the momentum as the campaign closes. The real question is, was he too far behind? Is it too little? Is it too late? Republican side, if Walker Stapleton figures out a way to lose it, more power to him. Um, but, uh, you know, Victor Mitchell benefits by the other candidates, as we talked off the air, being so weak that Victor becomes, by default, his name is really not Vic Victor Mitchell. His name is not Walker Stapleton. He becomes the anti-Walker candidate. Natasha, Kerry uh, Kennedy has remained, uh, has kept a laser focus on education issues. Every single ad references teachers, mm -hmm. uh, the support she has from there. And... As a strategy, she's going to live or die by that if she uh, wins this primary. What do you think of that strategy, uh, especially facing the competition she's looking at in the primary? Well, it's certainly a hot topic. It, it obviously pulls well with people. It's something people care about. Of course, we care about our kids. We've learned that, um, especially this week. Um, but there are so many other issues that will take precedent, particularly after June 26th. So once we head, in, head into the primary, what, what's kind of an unknown there, and, and as I've reported on this, this race in the past month, is what is going to be the issue? Is it going to be education? Um, usually it would be the economy, but things are doing so well in Colorado, that's not the same motivator that it has been in the past. So I think whoever ultimately wins on the 26th, the 27th will be pivoting into a broader range of topics to appeal to more of those moderate voters, to try to reach out to, to pull in those votes um, because the general election, no matter what, is going to be a very different game than what we've seen with the primary. While the gubernatorial races have dominated headlines during this primary season, they are not the only primary races. A contentious Democratic primary is going on in the Attorney General's race, and we're beginning to see more noise from the candidates running for Congress in the 6th and 2nd Congressional District Democratic primaries. Uh, David, from the down-ballot uh, primaries, take your pick. What what uh, is the most surprising or at least most entertaining battle so far to you? Well, in my view, one of the maybe the best campaign commercial produced this year in the entire country has to be uh, Levi Tillerman, who's the underdog in the Democratic primary for the 6th Congressional District to challenge Mike Kaufman, because it has Tillerman getting gassed in the face with, with bear spray and then re reacting. Um, and, and yes, if, if you get an up-close shot with that and you don't have immunities like it, eating a lot of hot food or, uh, you know, having enough drugs in your system to have countervailing effects, it is certainly a, a temporarily disabling thing. Tillerman's point is we should, instead of teachers having firearms, let's give them all bear spray. I, I think there's actually situations in which a it could be fine for, and good for somebody to have a bear spray. And there's plenty of teachers who wouldn't want to carry a gun, but since bear spray is non-lethal, maybe they'd want to carry that, so fine for them. But it is also true that uh, firearms are 
have a larger range among other things. So it depends on, on where you are and whether bear spray will do any good. Um, on, the Democrat, on the Democratic uh, AG primary, Joe Salazar has the great advantage of having the, the same name as two very popular moderate Democrats from our recent past, Ken Salazar and his, his brother uh, John Salazar. And, and uh, also Joe Salazar, no relation to those two, have, does have a strong and enthusiastic left-wing volunteer base. Phil Weiser, the dean of CU Law School, has got much more money, um, but very far behind in the polls. Um, I will say one of Salazar's advantages is at least he's been a state representative. He can work in a building that has Republicans in it, um, whereas Wiser at CU Law School has made fairly sure he doesn't ever have to face that kind of experience. <laughs> to, to your bear spray point, somewhere Betsy DeVos is smiling saying, I told you bears were a problem. <laughs> uh, Eric, when you look at the non-governor's races, uh, what are the headlines that you're seeing that people need to know? I'll try to be quick here. Uh, two races are going to uh, attract my interest come Tuesday night. One is the Democratic race for attorney general. You have one candidate, Phil Weiser, with all the Democratic establishment support, all the money. And then you have Joe Salazar with that left base, the excitement of the Bernie crowd, and the last name. Uh, even though it's a last name of, I think, only a distant, distant relationship, if any relationship. Uh, if there's going to be an upset, that could be an upset. And then the second one, your question mentioned Congressional District 2 and 6. I'm actually more focused on Congressional District 1. The Diana DeGette, Sayura Rao race, I don't think there's an upset brewing. I don't think Sayura Rao is going to dislodge Diana DeGette, but I think she's going to give her a scare. And I think it is going to be a closer margin. I think Rao's number will start with, uh, I would guess, a four and maybe into the mid-fours. Uh, I could be totally wrong on this, but I think there is a message that is going to be sent even in losing in that race. Natasha, we're talking about congressional races. Do uh, Jason Crow and Joe Neguse, who seem to be the front runners both in the 2nd Congressional District and the 6th Congressional District, are the races wrapped up or is there a potential upset brewing somewhere? <laughs> no, nothing is wrapped up. There are potential um, upheaval in all of these races. I mean, to borrow from Game of Thrones, the candidates are coming, or, or more appropriately, the candidates are already here. That's what's unique <laughs> about this race is that the, the, the selection is that there's so many people on the ballot. So um, yes, we pay attention to those big ticket statewide races, but all the way down, all those state race, House races, the state Senate races, those are going to be um, very impacted by the unaffiliated voters. And I think that that's the thing that we don't know what will occur yet. What we do know is that in some of those big races, um, say in a, in a more recent Republican governor's race, there was a 40,000 um, vote difference between the first place and the fourth place person. So when we're talking about the number number of ballots that have already been turned in by unaffiliated voters, could those have a huge impact in a House race? Absolutely. So are the candidates the White Walkers or the unaffiliates the White Walkers? I'll, I'll let you decide. <laughs> all right, all right, good. This is a Game of Thrones metaphors on card inside out. You, you just can't beat it. Patty, wrap it up for us. Uh, Non-governors races in the primary, what do we need to know? I think Salazar is going to take that. It's interesting. You can tell how much trouble Weiser's in because Hickenlooper, who hasn't endorsed in the gubernatorial race, came out and endorsed him. And I think people are concerned that he is way too far behind. 
I think Joe Salazar would do a perfectly fine job. I think um, in District 2, really interesting how much support there is. You know, people are fighting the goose. I mean, it seems like a really kind of grassroots effort, just judging by the number of letters I've gotten. But I think the goose has it. And despite the fact that the bear spray... He didn't shoot himself in the face, but I think he shot himself in the foot on that one. He got a lot of attention, but Jason Crow is still going to take that. Let's get a quick take on this last one. The fear over children being separated from parents at the border resulted in a reversal of the Trump administration's policy that began the controversy a couple of weeks ago. Before President Trump reversed course, Congressman Mike Kaufman said he would support legislation with Senator Dianne Feinstein and Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper signed an executive order that would have blocked Colorado from sending any resources towards the effort. Uh, Eric, your, your quick take on this one, I struggled to find the Colorado connection to this big national story, but seeing those comments from Kaufman made me think it sounds like it's pretty important for him to look like he's on the, the right side on this one. Yeah, hard to do a quick take on this, but I, I will try. Kaufman, it's all about that district. That district is 20% Latino, but more than that, it is the epicenter. It looks like immigrant America looks, and it's not just Latino immigration. It's all kinds uh, of immigration. I think this whole story out of the border t talks about the power of visuals, the power of pictures. You know, you can go back to Vietnam, and what turned the tide in Vietnam was all of a sudden we had a war broadcast in our living room. That's now 40-some years ago. I think the power of pictures is what has made this such a volatile issue, what forced Donald Trump to reverse course, even though he's denying that he re reversed course. And then there's a whole separate subject about Melania's jacket yesterday, but we'll leave that alone. It's plenty for the cable channels to hash out. Natasha, your reaction to some of the Colorado reaction to the big story? Well, I think one of the things, um, there's so many distractions in, in the political world today, but one of the things that um, I think should, we should spend some time focusing on is the polls that came out earlier this week, and there were many of them, um, but mostly along the same lines that the majority of people opposed the family separation issue. But if you drilled down into that number and looked at the difference between Democrats and Republicans, there is a great divide which has not gotten any smaller in recent months. Patty, what do you think, the local reactions to the big national story? Well, Eric's right. Kaufman took the response he needed to. We've got the GEO detention center in Aurora. We interviewed a parent who had been separated from their child at the border who is has been in that detention center. So it, even though we don't seem to have any kids here, and I think that's a good problem because it's so horrific, uh, we do have people who've been affected by it. And also to quote Eric, in, in Texas, South Texas, in July, in June, you do not need to even wear a jacket, much less one with a slogan. <laughs> David, wrap it up for us. The challenge in finding out the reality in this has been the lying on all sides. The White House has been constantly and brazenly lying, as the Washington Post fact-checker Glenn Kessler has pointed out. So has the media. For example, the cover, the pick, the little two-year-old girl on the cover of Time magazine this week was never separated from her mother. She was crying because her mother put her down uh, while the mother was being patted down after having been apprehended uh, with other people who were being smuggled across the, in a, a raft across the Rio Grande River. Nobody needs to be detained for more than a couple days if we would just have enough officials who can do asylum interview the first credible determination interviews, but that's backlogged by weeks and weeks. All Congress needs to do is just fund that and somebody who illegally crosses the border and commits a crime and you say, well, if they have a child with them and they claim asylum, we'll give them an asylum, a shot at asylum. That could be processed within 48 hours instead of needing to take weeks. 
Let's quickly get to our favorite part of the show. Disgrace the week. As always, Ms. Cahoon, please start us off. The obscene amount of money that has already gone into this election and the amount that will still be paid. Although I will say for once, the negative ads that obscene amount of money has bought has at least shown us some sides of the candidates we needed to see. David. The Denver Pride Fest, which refused to allow participation by uh, a men's rights group because that group had been criticized by the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is a well-known top top-tier fake news group. The Southern Poverty Law Center just had to pay over $3 million uh, for falsely libeling uh, a moderate Muslim group. Eric. David previewed this earlier in the show, but Cara Education Association, the teachers' union, an outright fabrication related to a group that I'm involved in called Secure Futures. It's involved in the pension reform issue. We haven't given a dime to any candidate. We haven't endorsed any candidate. We couldn't if we wanted to as a 501c3. We've raised maybe a million dollars, a little less than that, in three years. They said we did a $2 million check uh, to one candidate this year. And their excuse was it was a simple accident. Well, I don't see anything simple about it. And how the heck do accidents like that happen? Natasha. We'll keep it short. The completely avoidable psychological damage that was done to young children this week. That's good. Let's get to say something nice. Patty. There's a lot of debate over old Denver, new Denver, but there's a part of Denver that is unchanging and great. That's my brother's bar, and the longtime owner, founder, Jim Carragas, passed away on Father's Day memorial service on Monday. He created a great place. Here, here. David. Yet another federal court ruling against Colorado's disastrous, unconstitutional campaign finance system created by Common Cause. Now, the... Uh, the system that said if somebody files a complaint, it has to go ahead and the accusations have to move forward, regardless of whether it's patently frivolous on its face. Uh, that has to come to an end. And now the Secretary of State will review complaints for, for credibility and, and lawfulness. Eric. You're here to Patty's. Uh, we lost one of our wisest commentators this week, Charles Krauthammer, somebody of unusual intellect, insight, decency, courage, and how he lived his life uh, with his handicap, uh, a, a real loss for dialogue and discourse in this country. Natasha. I'm going to say the World Cup <laughs> in a totally different vein, um, whether it's little kids learning more about the international, um, international countries where they are, finding them on a map, whether it's watching Ronaldo um, do what he does so well, whether it's watching the Japanese um, fans clean up after a match or, or Mexican fans potentially causing an earthquake in their own country in, in celebration. It's just a great event and a great reminder of how international our world truly it was, is. It was the Senegal fans cleaned up the stadium after they beat Poland. Uh, but but uh, I concur with that. I'm a big World Cup fan myself. We have a great treat for you tonight. Tired of hearing ads from candidates? Want to hear some, from, from some free thinkers? Easy for me to say. At 9 p.m., you can catch our third place match and our championship round of both sides of the story, our high school debate series. Students from Denver East, Cherry Creek, George Washington, and Manitou Springs face off. If you have ever worried about the younger generation handling the issues of this world, Tune in for these debates. Your faith in our future will be restored. I also want to say that you're probably seeing the new look here, which means it's time machine season. That's right. In two weeks on July 6th, we'll offer our time machine trip to 1968. Now, we had a couple of social media reports. It is going to be our last trip in our time machine, but it is not the last episode of Call Radio and Set Out. Do not worry <laughs> about that. We'll still be here until the FCC says we can't come. But for right now, uh, do, uh, tune in on July 6th for our 1968 edition. And... That also is a nice time to remind uh, all of you for your thanks and supporting the show because we got another Emmy nomination for last year's Time Machine show, which went back to 1917. So thank you for making all that possible. 
That is all the time we have for this edition of Colorado Inside Out. Take CIO wherever you go. We're on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, you name it, we are there. Check out our podcast on iTunes or Google Play. And for everyone here at Colorado Public Television, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Good night. Mm-hmm.